Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. You better listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the Dear friends, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network profile series highlighting the work of our members. The growing network of over 70 shows in four countries serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. My name is Evan Papp, and I produce Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Simon Sapper of Union Dues. Hello, Simon. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself Hello, and and where you grew up and uh, what led you to organized labor? Well, Evan, I've uh, I've been in organized labor all my working life, really, or even before then, because I first got into organized labor because my dad and my uncle were both union reps. So my dad and my uncle would go around to my uncle's house, my uncle would come around to our our house, and they talk union stuff all the time. And then I'd go down to the shops with my dad, and he'd bump into someone else he knew from the union movement. So it just seemed like the most normal thing in the world. And in those days, which was like the 1970s in in the UK, that was when labor was at its height. 13.2 million members of of a trade union at that time. So the union leaders were in the news a lot, and they were like giants. They They were my heroes, really. And of course, like lots of kids, you grow up wanting to be like your dad. So I kind of followed his footsteps into, into organized labor. Uh, and this was, I, I, I'm a Londoner, I've lived most of my life in, in London. So it was very, a very buzzy, vibrant uh, atmosphere, lots, lots going on. And it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Uh, it was only when I, as I grew older that I realized I was a bit of a geek. <laughs> I, was the, I, was the odd one, I was the odd one out. And actually unions were a, a more specialist interest but nevertheless uh, you know unions have been my home in more ways than once more ways than one so a lot of people aren't familiar with unions at all uh could you talk a little bit about why you may be interested or where or why people should be interested in labor news and why you think unions and organized labor are important and should be covered well it's important to realize that even though membership is not as great as it once was. In the UK, for example, there are still 6 million people who are members of of unions. That's the biggest voluntary network in the country by a long, a long way. And I think people, people understand that there are some things you can do for yourself, but some things you get far more by working together, a collective voice at work, a collective voice in in, in the community. You can get far more by being part of a collective. You get far more protection by being part of a, a collective than you ever could as an individual. And once that message sinks home, actually the recruitment discussion becomes a lot easier with people when you say to people, I think you should join the union because. It's, it's really interesting, the parallels between the Thatcher government and the Reagan government. And I feel like we've been living in the United States in the Reagan arena my entire life for the last 40 years. And... I'm, I'm just interested about how 
or what what are the some of the things that you saw uh i guess when thatcher came to power and and the attack on labor unions in general it was a real it was it was a real um i was gonna say a wake-up call but it wasn't a one a wake-up call it was an alarm bell ringing very very loudly the 1970s in the uk were the most saw the most progress towards equality the narrowing between the richest and the poorest that there'd ever been in the UK. So we get to the end of the 70s and suddenly, bang, we get a, a Reaganite person like Margaret Thatcher becoming prime minister. And she very quickly made her mark and not in a good way. She gave a speech at which she said, there's no such thing as society, only family. So of course, for community-based organizations, organizations that believe in collectivism, that's a problem to start with. And then systematically, she set about privatizing state-owned industries and doing it in such a way that broke union power. So, but each year as we went through the 1980s, there were disputes in the steel industry, in the print industry, in the health service, and most famously probably in the mines as well. And, and each time there was a real aggression and a very clear political agenda towards deregulation and deunionization. So that's, that's what I saw. Of course, I, I, yeah, I was born in 1962. So I know I don't look it, but, um, <laughs> but, but therefore I went from school to college in 1980 and I was in the college union movement, college in the, in the college labor movement, and then came out into the workforce when I graduated in 1984. So by that time, as well as all the disputes that we've spoken about, trade unions had been banned at the government communications headquarters, uh, sort of our equivalent of the Pentagon in the, in, in the US because they thought that trade unionism, the government said trade unionism is incompatible with national security. I mean, what an insult to people who have been loyal servants protecting their country and being union members to be suddenly told, you've got to choose one or the other. Uh, so, yeah, this, this, so therefore the fight to save the union movement, as it were, was still very live and very loud. And that's why I, I started applying for jobs with, with trade unions. And eventually after endless applications, someone took me on. <laughs> I why why uh, national security because I'm almost thinking back of like the McCarthy years in the United States as a parallel was that a lot of the organized labor was red baited as being communist and Soviet and so that was one way that labor was attacked in the 1950s but in the UK why why did they cite national security concerns I don't know. I really don't know. And, it, it, and I'm sure that there must be a treatise on it somewhere or other. But if you think about the people who were working as, um, you know, as technicians, essentially, or, or scientists for the government communications headquarters, if you're going to target them, why not target people who are the civilian staffs in nuclear power stations or for nuclear submarines or a whole host of other, uh, of other reasons? And there seemed to be no other argument other than this is we think this is a weak spot or we think this is a particular spot and we're going to push we're going to push but it turned out that 11 or so of the trade unionists at gchq refused to give up their union membership and were ultimately dismissed because of that and then when the labor party came back into power in uh, 1997 one of the first things they do, did was to revoke the ban on trade union membership at gchq so could you talk a little bit about your show, Union Dues, and why you wanted to start it and what it's about? Well, Union Dues is the UK's only all things general union show. And it exists because there's a, there's a need for it. There's an audience for it. 
before Union Jews, there was a thing called the Unions 21 podcast, which occupied similar sort of territory. And I was privileged enough uh, to produce and co-host that. But then when Unions 21, which is like a, a very well-respected and active sort of campaign orientated think tank, when they decided actually we'll take a break from podcasts, there's suddenly this audience, but no one to service it. So I thought, OK, let's have a go at producing my own show. And, you know, as every podcaster listening to this will, will know, as I'm sure you know yourself, Evan, when you actually have the idea for your show and you, you develop it and you build it up and you bring it to market, as it were, it's really exciting. Yeah, it's very, you know, you kind of like, a bit scary, but it's kind of exciting, exciting as well. And what we tend to do each episode is I'll have a featured guest, someone of note or someone who's made a unique contribution or is in the news about what they're doing on the, in the trade union labor movement from the UK. And I'll have a general roundup of news and views. Always a shout out to the Labour Radio Podcast Network, of course, because very proud to be associated uh, with that. And we tend to go in blocks of eight or nine, and then we have a break, and then we have another block of, of, eight, of eight or nine. But, we, you know, we have, we have special episodes as well. I mean, for example, I'm really chuffed that, that um, I've got a show coming up with the General Secretary of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions following the fantastic win by New Zealand Labour and Jacinda Ardern uh, recently. That would be, be an opportunity to discuss with our New Zealand listeners and anyone else who's interested, what that victory means for the labor movement down under. One of your recent shows called A Brave New World of Work, you focus on data and almost like algorithmic management as the future of some of, of, of how workers are going to be managed, quote unquote. Uh, it, it was incredible. Do you want to talk a little bit about just what was in that show? Well, uh, uh, the brave new world of work uh, is a deliberate play on words because it reads across to some of the ideas in Aldous Huxley's book from the 1930s about what the brave new world will look like. And my guest uh, was Dr. Christina Colclough, who some of the listeners to this, uh, this podcast may have come across before because she is a global expert on labour in a digital environment. And what she essentially was saying is either by default or design, unions are so busy firefighting uh, so busy servicing existing members, protecting their, their terms and, and conditions, that they haven't really got to grips with what data is and what the power of algorithms, the power of algorithms are. Even though many workers today are governed by algorithm, they never see a line manager or a supervisor. They just get it on their phones or their tablets what they're supposed to do. And it's a key challenge for unions to be to be able to first of all understand what data is. And secondly, exert some control of it, just as we would over any other piece of new, new technology. Because unless, unless we do that, we retreat from this space. And if we retreat from this space, then people who may well be hostile to us, frankly, can occupy it. And say that, say our data is mined and bundled up and then shipped, say, from the UK to the US and shipped from the US to Japan and shipped back to the US and then uploaded into the cloud. We have no control over it. We have no access to it. But it may be building a picture, a program of the perfect worker. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. It, <coughs> uh, it may be building an algorithm of what the perfect worker is. But the characteristics in the algorithm, I bet you won't include a, someone who's in favor of collective voice, someone who's acted in their, in their trade union. And they, of course, it may, you know, may not stop at that. It might not include someone who is um, a registered Democrat or it might not include someone who has no hair or ha whatever. So, so, so what Christina was talking about is, is you need to understand, you need to have input and you need to build in diversity and inclusivity. Because even if you or I were to build in that algorithm, 
we've got our kind of biases just like just like any other individual and what says that what looks good to us is necessarily good for everyone so it really was i mean i'm glad you picked that one up because i think that was one that that really mapped out in a very clear way something that actually is over the horizon for many unions but it needs to be brought closer that's for sure absolutely so as a member of the labor radio podcast network could you talk about why you think this network is important Oh, it's, I mean, it's a great idea and, and so, so, so necessary because I think a lot of us feel sometimes isolated. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we can feel a bit, you know, intimidated, maybe. But, but it's important to build unity and build strength. I mean, uh, you know, a, a basic watchword for our movement is unity is strength. And that's as important in podcasting as it is in, in, any, in any other form. And what the, the value of it, I mean, there's value in exchanging information. There's value in being part of a collective. There's value in being able to say, if you like what I'm doing, have a look, have a look in this portal, which is what I do every show. But I was also struck by something that I saw recently on the, on the network. Judy Ansel down in Kansas City, who runs, runs a great podcast down there, put a note out about how in her part of the U.S., voters are being intimidated basically there's not only a drive to keep people away from the polls voters are being in being intimidated and she was saying has anyone else got this sort of experience what else you know any any ideas about how it can be countered and stuff like that and i you know and i just thought and i just sent her a brief private note to say you know solidarity i'm not sure i can help in terms of podcast material but solidarity because that sounds a really bad state of affairs and it's just that ability to be able to give you know solidarity and support to it to each other on a personal as well as a kind of podcast level that I think I think is really important, really important. Absolutely agree. And this network is, I think, going to play a very important role going into 2021 and beyond. And I feel blessed meeting people like you. And it's also just opening my mind to all of these different struggles. And it's it's bridging these struggles in a lot of ways as I hear about people fighting and oftentimes losing, but every victory is a victory for all workers everywhere. And so I, I feel very fortunate to, to meet people like you as well. No, no, it's, it, I mean, it, that's great. It, it, it's, it's an encouragement, isn't it? It's, it's not just a kind of defensive thing of, 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 you know, we're part of a collective, we're not alone, but actually it, it broadens the mind. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing. And thank you for the work you do in terms of maintaining and, and nourishing the network. Thank you. So in closing, looking into the future of organized labor, where do you see opportunity and hope? I see opportunity and hope in, in two particular ways rather than places. The first is that especially as we continue to get to grips with coronavirus, I've heard more and more people describing it like a war, uh, a, a war because actually everything's up in the air, nothing's certain, who knows what the world will look like after it. But in the midst of the last global conflict, there were some tremendously positive things in terms of, a, in terms of social, a social movement, especially in the UK. There was a thing called the Beveridge Report that was written by uh, a centrist politician in, the, in 1943 or 1944 that set out the foundations of what then became the welfare state that, that has become a consensus. Uh, there's been a consensus in favor of the core elements of it, such as our National Health Service, that, that exists to this day maybe this set of circumstances will throw up a second beverage report. It would be great to think that there was a coming together, a a consensus behind a view that said, we can't go back to the way we were. 
I mean, I don't know whether that will happen or not. One can but hope. The second place I see hope is that even in the midst, or possibly particularly because of the uncertainty of coronavirus, the appetite for unionism, the appetite for collective voice and collective action is really strong. We're seeing a number of new unions form and bubble up in the UK from people who who have been hard to recruit for the conventional union. So people who are, who are hospital porters or ancillary staff, people who work in the gaming industry, creatives, all these people are, are getting together and forming unions and taking action to defend their terms and conditions or to try and get themselves a, a, a better deal. So that shows that the idea of unionism is alive and the spirit of it is, is, is quite strong. I th so I think there's great opportunity. There's also great risk, of course there is, but isn't there always? But the glass is certainly half full rather than half empty. You better listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they're willing to we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. right we got to feel for each other let our brothers know we're here got to get the message send it out all loud and clear none of us are free 